Our main text this morning comes from the 26th Psalm. But I ask you, as a supplemental passage, we're going to look at the third chapter of the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter number three. And that reminds me of something. I ask you to pray for me because I'm just about ready to finish a lengthy study of the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. I'm on the home stretch, and I don't know what I'm going to study next. That's the problem with having a job like mine. You just want to study everything, and uh, my time is limited, and so I've narrowed it down. I try to jump from the Old Testament to the New Testament, then from the New Testament back to the Old Testament, so I stay kind of buoyant. But I feel like the Lord might want me to do an in-depth study of the Gospel of John. So you pray for me about that. And then the other one that I, I don't know, I can't figure it out, but the other one that I'm back and forth on, it's either John or Isaiah. Isn't that a fascinating uh, you know, contrast. So anyway, you pray for me. I need your prayers for uh, to the, the Lord would direct me what I'm supposed to be looking at next. And I'm excited either way. And I'm a winner either way. So God is very good. Jeremiah chapter number three. And as you're turning there, I guess I want to warn you about what we're about to look at. This is quite controversial. It sounds like Jeremiah chapter 3 sounds like a uh, headline uh, from the world news. <laughs> um, it's quite provocative, actually, and so uh, be prepared. Just know that these are not the words which I have written, but these are the words which God has written. And we're going to talk about Jeremiah chapter 3 and how that relates to the 26th Psalm. And uh, so buckle your seatbelts. Uh, is everybody ready? Say amen. amen. All right. Jeremiah chapter number three in verse number one. The Bible says, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers, and you would return to me, declares the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see where have you not been ravished. By the wayside you have set awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore the showers have been withheld, and the spring rain has not come. Yet you have the forehead of a, you see the word there. You refuse to be ashamed. Have you not just now called to me? My father, you are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken, but you have done all the evil that you could. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did? That faithless one, Israel, how she went up onto every high hill and under every green tree and there played the, you see the word. Verse number seven, and I thought after she has done all this, she will return to me, but she did not return and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. 
She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with the decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went to and played the, you see the word there in verse 8. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committed adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. Verse 11, and the Lord said to me, faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. May God bless the reading of his word. This is the word of the Lord. One of the great teachings of uh, Jeremiah chapter 3 is this. Mere knowledge of history is an insufficient anecdote to repeating it. What is going on in this third chapter and why is God so upset with his people? Well, verse number 6 contains one of the few explicit statements of a message by Jeremiah during Josiah's reign. And what you have is you have God bringing judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel. You remember just after the death of Solomon under Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the kingdom of Israel was split in half. And you had ten tribes in the north and two tribes in the south. Actually, nine and a half in the north and two and a half tribes in the south. But nevertheless, you had the Jewish kingdom that had been split between north and south. And in the year 722 BC, the mighty Assyrian general named Sennacherib would come into the northern kingdom of Israel and he would conquer the northern kingdom and he would carry away all the inhabitants of the land of Israel in the northern kingdom. He would carry those people away into his land, into the Assyrian kingdom. And this begins the great period of Jewish history known as the Diaspora. That's just a fancy uh, word that guys that teach the Bible use to describe the dispersion. The word diaspora means the dispersion. And uh, the, uh, the people of Israel lived all over the world. You had um, uh, Arab Jews, and you would have had African Jews, and you would have had Roman and Greek Jews, and you would have had Jewish people literally from all over the known world at that time. And the reason why there were people all over the world who were Jewish uh, because they lost their land to the Assyrian kingdom. And God is very explicit, as you could read, and God is very serious about why his people lost their land. You see, in the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, he says, I am the Lord your God, and he, then he said, I am a jealous God. And the relationship that God says, the analogy, the illustration that God gives of his relationship to his people named Israel is that he is a husband and Israel is his bride. And anything that the Jewish people allow in their lives, any idols, 
Anything that they love more than God, God says that's an idol. And in the ancient world, it was a very common uh, temptation for the people of God because they were surrounded by all these other tribes and nations and these people worshipped rocks and they worshipped wooden statues. There was a reference to that there in the third chapter of the book of Jeremiah. And God forbids idolatry. Do you want to know why God forbids idolatry? Because in the heart and mind of God, God's people are to be faithful to him because he is faithful to them. God views his relationship with Israel as a, as a marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And in the heart and mind of God, God says that if there's anything, Israel, in your life that you love more than me, you are committing infidelity. And one of the shocking truths that we find in the third chapter of the book of Jeremiah is that God was so brokenhearted. God was so upset at what his people Israel were doing by worshiping rocks and trees and other gods and so forth. God said that I am no longer married to you, Israel. I write you a bill of divorcement. And uh, that culminated with the Assyrian king coming and laying siege to the northern kingdom and carrying them away to be led captive into a foreign land. And those ten tribes in the northern kingdom have never been seen to this day ever again. This was an act of the judgment of God against the people of Israel. But notice... In verse number 6 of Jeremiah chapter 3, he said, The Lord said unto me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did? That backsliding one, Israel. That backsliding one, Israel. Faithless is the literal meaning of the Hebrew word. And so I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about this subject of backsliding. Whenever I was a young Christian, and I was involved in a larger church than this one, uh, it was a common thing. We'd say, oh, where's old brother Joe Schmo? Where's he been at? We ain't seen him in quite some time. And uh, they'd say, oh, Joe's not in church anymore. He's out backsliding. And there's this kind of an idea like, you know, that the people of God can make a profession of faith in the Lord. And if they decide that they don't want to live for him, that they're backsliding and that everything's okay because God is obviously a God of mercy, love, and uh, God loves everyone and they're just backsliding for now. But what we have, and I understand what people mean, maybe someone got away from the Lord, maybe they went through a trial, maybe they got bitter at God, maybe they got hurt in the church, and they're just not in church anymore. And after all, as the people of God, we can't look at the hearts of them, only God can do that. But I want to show you the severity of backsliding. In Jeremiah chapter 3, backsliding from God is associated with destruction. Backsliding from the Lord is associated with destruction. The idea in Hebrews chapter 10, which is another great passage on backsliding, 
If we backslide, if we turn back, the writer of Hebrews says, we turn back unto perdition. That means if we say that we love God and that we're saved and that we're born again, but we decide that we've got better things to do with the life that God's given us and we don't want to be accountable to God anymore, we don't want to study scripture, we don't want to be a part of the church, we don't want to have a prayer life, we don't want to have a praise life, if we decide that we want to do our own thing, go our own way and live our lives out from underneath the rule and the sovereignty of God, then the idea in Hebrews chapter 10 is those who do those things will be ultimately destroyed. Now there's some other controversial things taking place in passages like this, but what we need to understand is the relationship between backsliding and the 26th Psalm. So I want to have you turn with me to Psalm 23. Can everybody agree and does everyone understand this morning how serious this issue of backsliding is? Um, matter of fact, the Bible says that the kingdom of northern Israel backslid from God and ultimately they were destroyed because of it. And the, uh, the shocking thing that takes place in Jeremiah chapter number 3 is that God declares faithful, faithless Israel, backsliding Israel, is more righteous than backsliding Judah. How is it possible that the first kingdom which was carried away in 722 BC, how can God say that that northern kingdom was more righteous than the southern kingdom? Well, um, God allowed the northern kingdom to be carried away and destroyed as an example so the southern kingdom would stop playing fast and loose with God and the holy things of God. You see, they were worshiping idols, and in that ancient world, they had an idol called Baal, B-A-A-L, and another one named Ashtoreth. And these were pagan gods. And the Jewish people, can you believe what they were doing? They would build these giant statues that were made for the false god Baal. And this giant bronze or copper statue would have its hands folded and cupped in front of it and they would build large bonfires underneath the hands of this false and pagan God and they would offer up their children, their firstborn son, as a sacrifice to the pagan God. This was a very evil culture. This was a very depraved thing and God was very much against it. God hated what they were doing and ultimately around the year 550 BC give or take, the southern kingdom of Israel is going to be overcome and conquered by another mighty general. You might remember his name. His name was Nebuchadnezzar and he was the king of Babylon and that king would carry the Jewish people just like Sennacherib did to the Assyrians back into Babylon and uh, the nation of Israel at that point in human history nearly ceased to exist but God made a promise to the southern kingdom and he said in 70 years I'll let you come back into the land and that's where the great Old Testament historical books Ezra and Nehemiah pick up is that God under King Cyrus and Darius of the Persian Medes uh, 70 years after Israel had been carried away by the Babylonians King Cyrus lets them go back into the land rebuild the temple and the wall and uh, 
about 500 years later, there was somebody very famous that was to be born. You remember his name. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it was important that God would keep his word to the nation of Israel because he had made promises to them that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of where? Judah. And so in order for Jesus to be born, the Jews can't be in captivity in Babylon. God has a redemptive purpose. God's going to send the Messiah and Savior of the world to suffer and die on the cruel cross of Calvary and be resurrected again three days later for all who will believe on him. And that promise, that redemptive hope of the world that God has given us, that hope must be fulfilled. And God ultimately does that. But what I want to do is I want to sort of piecemeal for you the 26th Psalm together. Notice what the Bible said. He said, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked. Then he said, I have trusted. And then in verse number 12, my foot stands on level ground. I like what the, I'm going to take two translations of the English Bible. And I'm going to piece together for you some statements that will help us to bookend this great Psalm. From beginning to ending, there is a great theme. Notice what it is. He said in verse number 1, For I have walked in my integrity. And verse number 11, I shall walk in my integrity. I have walked and I shall walk in my integrity. The old King James Version, I like the way in which this uh, first verse of Psalm 26 is translated. He said in Psalm 26 and verse 1, I have walked, I have trusted, Therefore, I shall not slide. I have walked. I have trusted. Therefore, I shall not backslide. Then notice the last verse. It says, my foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. As we navigate the slippery slopes of life, we need the Lord through David to teach us how to keep from backsliding. Remember how serious this issue of backsliding is. Backsliding will ultimately lead you to destruction. In Psalm number 25 and verse 21, David declares that God is a God of integrity. Notice what he said in verse number 21 of the 25th Psalm. He said, May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. In, 25, in Psalm 25, it's God's integrity. But then in Psalm 26, it's David's integrity. So which is it? Well, the answer is yes. See, here's how it works. Because God is a God of integrity, David can be a man of integrity. What does integrity mean? Well, I have a definition here from the Webster's 1828 Dictionary, and it says the entire unimpaired state of anything, particularly of the mind, moral soundness or purity, incorruptness, uprightness, honesty, integrity comprehends the whole moral character. But then catch this but has a special reference to uprightness in mutual dealings, transfers of property, and agencies for others. The word integrity means that in my relationship with other human beings, that my relationship with other human beings is to be relationships that are founded and characterized by integrity. That's purity. That's love. That's putting others above myself. 
That's not putting myself first, but putting them first, making sure that whatever thing that I'm doing, whether it be business or pleasure, that those relationships are relationships of integrity. And David says that God had made him a man of integrity. Now, this is also a very fascinating thing, because you remember, David had lots of issues in his life. And the issue, as we're going to see here as we move through this great psalm, um, is that David ultimately came to trust not in himself, but in God. Isn't that wonderful? And that is the foundational characteristic of what it means to be filled with integrity. It means to trust in the Lord, to know that because God is a God of integrity, we can be people of integrity. So I have just a very simple point. I know probably you're going to be shocked, but I have one point. Can you believe it? And it's simple enough. And the only point that I have this morning, that's the main point. I have 11 sub points. I didn't tell you that. Okay, but I just did. And so, but there's only one main one. And so that's it. And it is walk in integrity. I'm an original thinker. Did you know that? That was a joke. Backsliding. I can remember whenever I was a young man, uh, a teenager, and I lived outside of St. Louis. Pray for me. And, uh, and I grew up in, uh, right outside of St. Louis where my grandmother lives. You know, you can see the big arch from her backyard in the fall and in the wintertime. And uh, right around the year 1998, some of y'all remember those days about 22 years ago, I was walking home from high school. I think I was a junior in high school. And uh, our sophomore, something like that. Some of those days I can't remember very well. But uh, I was walking home and there had been a giant ice storm. And there was probably about, and I'm not joking, I bet you there was four inches of just packed ice. It was a sort of a freak storm that blew in in like a February or something like that. And uh, I lived, my family at that time, we, I walked to high school. And uh, I was walking home after this giant ice storm, and then there was a cold front that swept through, and I kid you not, it looked like a giant skate rink. I mean, it was one solid sheet of ice, and there had been, you know, cars and trucks and so forth uh, that had been driving through the slush. And uh, then it wasn't just a big, giant, nice, uh, pristine sheet of ice, but it was a sheet of ice where you had uh, dump trucks and trash trucks and all this kind of thing. And so there was big, uh, you know, grooves in the ice. And I, you know, walking to school on the way there, there was a hill upward. And, uh, you know, I can say that I walked to school uphill both ways, okay? Uh, but uh, seriously, there was a hill at a pretty steep incline. And there was all this ice on the ground, and here I am walking home from school. And this, I would have loved to have been a pigeon sitting in the tree limb somewhere because I would take about five or six steps, and I would be on my rear end or on my back. And I bet you I slipped and fell. And I'm a fairly, uh, you know, at that time, was a lot younger than I am now, and was uh, a little bit more swift on my feet. But this was a pretty serious thing. 
And I'm thinking to myself, if I can make it home without some kind of broken bone this day, I'm, and I wasn't even a Christian at that time, and I was praying to God, Lord, please let me make it home in one piece. And ultimately I did, but I learned something. I learned something very valuable and I learned something very profound. And it was almost a prophetic moment in my life, now that I look back on it, because, and this time, you know, sticks out. This instance sticks out very carefully because uh, slipping and falling would have been a characteristic of my life for a long time in my late teenage years and early 20s. And when I say slipping and falling, I mean flat on my back. And uh, even after I became a Christian some years later, um, I found myself constantly slipping away from God and falling on my back. And one of the things that sticks out to me about that instance is this, is that the difference between someone who is backsliding is that they never really get up do they? They never really get up. They never really return to God. And that is the, what sort of defines those who backslide permanently away from God and those of us who uh, maybe have an issue or something in our lives. The Bible says a just man falls seven times, but then he rises up again in the book of Proverbs. And the idea is not that you fall, but the idea is that you rise back up and that your life is oriented upward rather than downward. Do you understand that? And this is an important, because this is an important point, because in this, we have a walk of integrity that is characterized for us in the 26th Psalm. So let's look at some of the characteristics of this walk of integrity. He begins talking about this walk. You remember, their book ends, I walk in my integrity. And then in the 11th verse, I shall walk in my integrity. In verse number 2, he said, Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. This is a reference to the refiner's fire. Um. In the ancient world, and even in our day, when they would mine gold or silver or some other precious metal, very often the gold would be mixed with another metal, like quartz or pyrite or uh, some kind of sulfur. Where I'm from in southern Illinois, they have giant coal mines everywhere. Peabody Coal Company just owns about half the state down in the south part of it. And uh, I have a brother-in-law that uh, works in the coal mine, and he works 300 feet underneath the surface of the earth. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine every day uh, going 300 feet below the surface of the earth and to know that they find petrified trees and shark teeth and all sorts of fascinating stuff way down below the surface of the earth? Matter of fact, he finds this interesting stuff and then he sells it on eBay. Don't tell him I told you that. But then he gives some of it to us. And uh, I have some of these little items uh, from, our, from my uh, brother-in-law who's a coal miner. But uh, the coal is mixed with sulfur, and the problem is if you burn too much of it, it falls back to the earth in the form of acid rain. 
and uh, then that messes up the trim on your the finish on your car and all kind of other stuff. It's just very unhealthy for the environment. So they scrub the coal and they remove the sulfur. And by the time they burn it, the the coal is a pure form of coal, and it's very very green and clean for the environment, or at least more so than the sulfur ridden kind. But nevertheless, the same principle is true for gold. It's got all sorts of other stuff mixed with it. And the idea is in verse 2 of Psalm 26 that the walk of integrity means that you're praying while you're walking. You're praying while you're walking. And what are you praying? You're praying for God to examine you. We're called upon by God to do self-examination. But sometimes we need to pray to God for God to examinate us. And that's what David does here. God is going to put David into the refiner's fire and God is going to purify him. How much? Well, in verse number two, he says both his heart and his mind. His heart and his mind. That's all that he is. Spiritually, emotionally, David asked God to purify him. This is one of the first and great characteristics of the walk of integrity. Secondly, this walk of integrity is putting things in focus as we walk. You ever notice that when you walk, have you ever been on a walk and you prayed? How many people have ever done that before? I used to really enjoy that. I need to get back into the habit of going on a nice long walk or a nice long run and uh, having some prayer time with the Lord. And as David's walking the walk of integrity, he's asking God in his prayer life to examine him. But then he's also doing something else in his walk. He's focusing his eyes on God's commitment to him and God's unfaltering truth of his word. Notice in verse number three, your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. How many people know that if you're not watching with your eyes when you're walking, you're going to end up somewhere you didn't want to end up. If you're not walking and focusing and making sure that you see your surroundings all around you, you might just walk off the side of a cliff. You might just walk off in the ditch. You might just get hit by a car. And the idea here is that we're keeping things in focus. David says, as I walk, he said, my eyes are focused on God's steadfast love. Now, this is that little word in the Hebrew language. I don't want to sound like a smarty pants, but I've got to remind you of it. It's the word hesed. And the word hesed is the word where God connects his love for his people Israel. Do you remember God called Israel not because Israel was hesed or good or loving. God called Israel because God was hesed. And God's goodness, God's love... God's commitment to us is to be the focal point of our eyes. We're to constantly, as we're walking the walkway of integrity, to be focusing our eyes upon God's unfailing, unfaltering truth and his loving commitment to us. Now notice in verse number three, this is interesting. And I walk in my faithfulness. What does your Bible say? He said, I walk, Lord, in your faithfulness. See, 
I may, from time to time, exemplify faithlessness. But just because I exemplify faithlessness, that doesn't mean that God is faithless. It means God is faithful. I, David says, I'm not trusting in my own ability to live for God. I'm not trusting in myself and my own strength to live for God. He says, I'm trusting in the hesed, the loving kindness, the steadfast love of God. And then David said, Lord, I'm walking in your faithfulness. Isn't that wonderful? How many people know that even when I'm faithless, God is faithful? Isn't that a wonderful reality? And that's what David is saying in this great psalm. It is a walk of faithfulness, but it's not a walk trusting in my faithfulness. It's a walk trusting in God's faithfulness. How much is God faithful? Well, in the song, he is able to keep and deliver me unto that great day. See, he which has begun a good work in you shall perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And my life is going to be filled with moments of weakness, moments of unbelief, moments of faithlessness. But guess what? God is never faithless. My commitment to God wavers all the time. God's commitment to me never wavers, not for one moment of one day ever. And uh, I like to think, if you ask my wife, I actually live my life like that. And it's sort of, it, it can be kind of scandalous. Did you know that? To know that, that God loves me and God is committed to me, no matter how well I do or how well I don't do, whether I'm having a religious day or I'm having an irreligious day, God still is committed to me and his steadfast love. Why? Because God called me not because I was good. God called me because he was good. And this is what David keeps before his face. Now, here's the sermon. The key to not backsliding is forward motion. Notice all the stuff that David's doing. He's talking about hands moving, eyes focusing, walking forward. He's moving forward. He's not looking back. He's not standing still. And when he does, in verse 12, the Bible says that his feet are on level ground. David is able to navigate the slippery slopes of life. Because God placed his feet on level ground and he's walking on level ground. You say, there's a mountain, Lord. The Lord says, no, it's not. It's level ground. <laughs> Lord, it's uphill six and a half thousand feet to the summit of Mount Sinai where you want to meet with me, Moses says. God says, nope, it's a paved road. It's smooth sailing all the way to the top. You just trust me, Moses. You don't focus on yourself. Don't focus on your shortcomings and your failures and your sins. Yes, we wish they weren't there. Yes, that's you know horrible that we do these things. But you know what? If you went to the most seasoned Christian who had been living their lives faithfully to God for 90 years, and you asked them, brother, sister, are there things in your life that you wish weren't in there? Well, if they're a genuine Christian, you know what they're going to tell you? Absolutely. After all these years of faithfulness to God, after all these years of studying Scripture and studying the Word, I still have stuff in my life, they would tell you, that dishonors the Lord. Things I wish that weren't there. 
But you know what? We're not trusting in our faithfulness. We're not trusting in our goodness as we walk the walk of integrity. We're trusting in him and his integrity. And because he's filled with integrity, now he's uh, uh, through his supernatural grace, which is, comes later in the passage, God is allowing me to be a man of integrity. So I don't have time for all of them, but here's an illustration. In the walk of integrity, it's not like a pickup truck. Pickup trucks have forward motion. You put it in a drive or you shift it into first gear, pop the clutch and roast the tires. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> uh, you, you, uh, you put it in first gear, you let off the clutch and you go forward. But in a pickup truck, you have something called reverse, unless you throw in the tranny. Uh, but uh, you got something called reverse, and a pickup truck can go backwards. Now contrast a pickup truck, no matter if it's a Ford or a Chevy or whatever, with a jet airplane. How many people have ever went in reverse in a jet airplane? Anybody? Crickets. Quiet. No one has ever went in reverse. I can't believe it. Here's a first. The Christian life is like a jet airplane. There's no reverse. Matter of fact, if a jet stands still, it falls to the ground. The Christian life is forward and upward motion all the time. You say, yeah, but I sinned. I know. He talks about that in verse number 6. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord. See, this is a reference to the brazen laver. That was a piece of furniture in the temple in the tabernacle. And once you made it past the altar, the brazen altar, the next piece of furniture that you had was the brazen laver. And that's just a fancy word for saying it was a big wash pot. It was a big wash pot, it was a big basin, it was a sink filled with water. And the priest and the people who were on their pilgrimage to go meet with God in the temple, they had to clean themselves. And the idea was, is that in the presence of God, we have full access to the washing in the brazen laver. That's forgiveness. How often should I be approaching the brazen laver to wash myself clean from my own sins? Every moment of every day. Anytime I need to, whosoever confesseth his sin shall obtain mercy. See, the idea is the confession that takes place at this, uh, at this altar, at this place where there's water, it's for cleansing. We need to be cleansed all the time. And when I'm cleansed from God, what am I in verse number six? I'm innocent. You say, but your record. What about my record? God washed my record away in verse number six. Did you know that? I mean, I wash my hands in innocence. Isn't that absolutely staggering? Is that all of our sins have been completely washed away in the record book of God if you belong to him. But there is a separation issue, isn't there? Look at verse number 9 and 10. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. There is a uh, pun taking place here. The pun is in verse number 6, 
with David washing his hands at the altar at the brazen labor of God, and these people, what are their hands filled with? Their hands are filled with blood. Their hands are filled with sin. That's what separates David from these other people. And there must be a separation. Brother Currington used to say all the time, those who do not love the Lord will not help you serve the Lord. And we must be careful at who we allow into our lives as friends, family, or acquaintances. I want to read you a quote by C.S. Lewis. I thought it was very profound. Many people have a very strong desire to meet celebrated or important people, including those with whom they disapprove. But I am inclined to think a Christian would be wise to avoid, where he decently can, any meeting with people who are bullies, lascivious, cruel, dishonest, spiteful, and so forth, not because we are too good for them. In a sense, it's because we are not good enough. We are not good enough to cope with all the temptations, nor clever enough to cope with all the problems which an evening spent with the society of sinners produces. Think about that. He says, be careful with who you associate yourself with, not because you're better than them, but because you're not good enough to not be like them. Well, that's a completely different way of thinking about it, isn't it? And that's what David is saying here. There's not a pharisaical, boy, I'm not going to associate with them wicked, rotten sinners. <laughs> I'm a member of the Baptist Christian Church and we're all sinners. I don't act like that. Now, I thought that, not at all. And matter of fact, you know that that's not what he says because in verse number 12 of Psalm number 26, he says, My foot stands on level ground in the assembly. I will bless the Lord. But then in verse 11, he says, But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. Lord, I am a sinner, David says. I don't want to associate myself with people who don't know you, Lord, not because I don't trust them to do what's good. He says it's because I don't trust myself to do what's good. Be very, very careful with who you associate yourself with. You know, you heard the old expression, if you hang out in the barbershop long enough, you're going to get a haircut. Right? Huh? Junior, you like that, don't you? All right. But if you hang out in the barbershop long enough, you're going to get a haircut. And uh, this is the, the uh, truth that this psalm is teaching. Be careful who we associate ourselves with if we call ourselves children of God. It won't be because you're too good for them. It will be because you're not good enough for them. I like verse number 8. What kind of a walk is it? It's a walk all the way into the house of God. <laughs> Somebody says, how can David go in God's house? He's a sinner. I know that's exactly the kind of people that God wants in there. Those that God can deal with according to his grace and to his mercy. David said at the end of the psalm, I don't, I don't deserve anything that you're going to give me, Lord. But it's because of your graciousness. We can be filled with integrity, and remember, integrity is God-centered. Because God is filled with integrity. The victory over backsliding is to walk with God and not the world around us. 
The idea to keep us from sliding backwards like Israel did in the Old Testament is to slide forward toward the glory of the Lord, to the habitation of our God. This is the way in which we can stand on level ground whilst navigating the slippery slopes of life. Let's pray. We'll just have a time of brief reflection, no invitation. Anyone in here would say, Brother Joel, I need to know what it means to walk in integrity. Remember, that's not you trying hard to live for God. That's you believing God. Believing that God is a God of steadfast love. Believing that God is a God of graciousness. Yes, we all have our feet that stumble from time to time. We're walking home from school, uh, you know, on a four-inch sheet of ice and we slip and fall. But you seek, you're constantly seeking to rise up again for the glory of the Lord, to live for God, to stand up straight, pointed to the heavens, onward, upward, moving forward, propelling through the atmosphere like a jet airplane for the glory of God, not standing still, not turning back, but standing on level ground, even when the terrain is forbidding. How many people will say, Brother Joel, pray for me that I would learn how to stand on level ground? Anybody at all? God bless you. God bless you.